So to set the stage, I don't know how many years ago this was. It was eight, nine. But I had my older girls and we were going to go out to eat. So I asked them where they wanted to go. And for some reason, McDonald's has really done a great job of getting kids to love that place. So it was like one of the last times I'd eaten there until I took the high school group to Mexico. And then we went back to McDonald's and I realized why well, I don't eat there anymore. So they chose McDonald's. I'm like, no, come on, let's eat somewhere healthy. Let's go to Taco Bell. Come on. <laughs> so we go there and we're in line and I'm figuring out what to eat. And there was this big picture of a double cheeseburger and it was glorious. It, the perfect smooth dome-shaped bun, two glistening patties. The cheese is just melting and starting to come, come out the sides. Like, I was like, oh, those look so good. So we get up there. The girls both ordered Happy Meals, of course. I said, I'll have two double cheeseburgers, a uh, large fry, and a Coke. Wait, make that a Diet Coke. I want to be healthy. So, <laughs> so ridiculous. So we get our meal. We sit down. I pray. The, the girls dive into their Happy Meals, and then I unpackaged my double cheeseburger, and it looked nothing like the picture. It was not dome-shaped. In fact, it looked like somebody had stepped on it. And on top of that, there was a hole poked in the bun, and where the hole had been poked in the bun, it kind of soaked up the grease, so it looked like this little cesspool right in the middle of my burger. And then whoever had put that burger together that morning maybe didn't have enough caffeine because it wasn't assembled correctly. One of the patties was like hanging out like an old hound dog's tongue, right? Not dripping saliva, but grease onto the little wrapper. And I'm looking there and I picked it up. I looked at it. And then I looked at the picture. And I looked back at it. And I looked at the picture and I thought, they lied to me. And then I ate it. <laughs> okay. So I think that's where we're at right now in the Bible. You have chapter 11. I, if you're here last week, chapter 11, something happens. I call it the last straw, where God essentially changes a lot of things. If you look at Genesis 1 through 11, is God working with all nations? From chapter 12 through really the rest of the New Old Testament, excuse me, it's God now working through one dude and his family, Abraham. It's like the nations were put on pause, but you can still find the nations. But God has really said, what happened at Babel was so bad, the perception that humanity has of me, I'm gonna change radically because they needed a brand new picture of me. And so if you're here last week, Babel was this. It was the name Babel means gate to God. And they built a tower where they thought will reach all the way up to the heavens. The idea of Babel is this. I can get to God through my own tower building. I can get to God through my own gate design. I can do it. I can get to God. And God comes down, confounds that, confuses that, scatters that, and then chapter 12, God says, no, this is the right way. This is how things work. This is how you approach me. 
There's no more babbles. We're not doing it that way. And what I see in chapter 12, really the next couple of chapters is the way life works, the way God works. God now says, this is reality. And scripture is given to you and me to reshape us into the kind of people that God wants. And chapter 12 is one of those brilliant high points. So I've gone real simple, um, not a lot of illustrations. I'm just gonna give you what this chapter says and how it's repainting the correct portrait of God that had become corrupted by Babel and corrupted by saying, you can get to God on your own and do it on yourself. Nope. So check it out. I believe this is the pattern that will be repeated to the Old Testament. I have seen this is the pattern in my own life and in other people's lives. All right? So are you ready? Here's what we, we have five points. Number one is this. God comes. Babel was, you'll come to God on your own. You'll do it on your own. You'll build your tower. You'll get to God on your own. If you build it, he'll come. You can control God. God owes you. The first thing you see in chapter 12 is this. No way. God comes. Look at verse one. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I believe this is the covenant that governs the rest of scripture. We'll talk about that on Wednesday. It is the covenant. It supersedes the Mosaic covenant. But God comes. Chapter 11 you build it, you do your own thing. God will see how good you are and your tower building. And he'll be like, bro, you are so awesome. I elect you. You're varsity, you're on my team. Chapter 12 is God comes to this guy. He lives in Ur of the Chaldees. He's married. His wife's name, Sarai, literally means wife of the moon God. Most likely, Abram has married into an idolatrous priestly family. He's an idolater pagan, undeserving, nothing. And God comes to him and covenants with him and says, I'm going to do these things for you. So God is straightening out Babel, first of all, by saying, I come to you, you don't come to me. That is fundamental to Christianity. It's fundamental to God's character. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, there's a book that's given because we make this mistake all the time. We try to build babbles and we try to build towers. We try to say, look how good I am, God. Don't I deserve it? Look how good I am, God. Bless me. And the book is called Galatians. And that idea that you and I can earn God's blessing, Paul calls it in chapter one, verse seven, a reversal of the gospel. Why? Because you see it right here. God comes and he blesses an undeserving dude named Abram. That's the way it works. We can't build towers to God. We can't make our own gates to God. God comes to us and blesses us even when we're undeserving, all right? And this mindset that you and I can somehow build into God or somehow earn something from God or earn what can only be given, this mindset is so damning and here's why. 
because it turns God into a cosmic Santa Claus who's making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's been naughty and who's been nice. And so then we begin to have this picture of God, this misrepresentation of God where all of a sudden, when we do good things, we think God owes us something. And that can make you very angry at God when he doesn't respond the way you think he should. Or the other side is when we blow it, we expect God to punish us, right? So you lie, and you know you lied, and you get in your car and you're like, oh no, God's gonna give me a flat tire. I just know what's gonna happen. You gossip, oh no, my kids are gonna get the flu. Your wife, when you have a fight, your husband, you have a fight, you get in the car, oh no, my train is gonna go out. Because you're constantly thinking of God in a Babel kind of way. And it's, it's horrific. Just first of all, like there are 7 billion people on the planet. How busy would God be if that was true? I mean, I just think about that for a second. I mean, like tire, 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 tranny, epidemic, flu, I kill you all. That's what would happen. And so God is straightening this up. That's not how you, res- that's not how I work. That's not how this thing happens at all. Now, there are repercussions for sin. No doubt, it's not God getting you, though. Galatians 6, 7, same book says, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. We'll see some of the reaping of sin in this text. Well, Matt, doesn't God like my good works? Let me give you what the Bible says about our best works. It's Isaiah 64, verse 6, and it says this. All your righteousness, okay? Not your bad stuff. If you could grab everything in your life that you did good, all your righteousness, right? I walked in a little granny across the road. I, I volunteered at Rotary. I donated a kidney to somebody. Like, oh, I'm a good dude. All of that is to God like filthy rags. Apart from Jesus Christ, that's the way God sees our good works right? Because you cannot build your own tower to God. It's God making this abundantly clear. So what you see over and over from this point forward is God comes to undeserving people and covenants and blesses them because that's God's nature. Has God come to you? Has he covenanted with you? Because that's the gospel. That's the way it worked. This whole thing culminates in Jesus, who is God in the flesh, coming to us, dying for us, making a covenant, the new covenant in us, that he'll renew us and make us the right kind of people, okay? So this is it. Number one, if you get nothing else from this message, know this, God comes to us, we don't come to him. Number one. Number two, right after God comes, here's what happens. Life comes. Look at verse 10. Genesis 12. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Okay, just to catch those up that may not know the story of Abram. Abram hears this call of God and he responds. He leaves his home he leaves his country. He leaves family. He leaves soccer reunions. He leaves uncles. He leaves all this stuff. He goes to a land that he has never seen, doesn't even know it exists. 
There's no Google Maps. He can't get on the internet and figure out the demographics and like, is there high crime there? Is there, what, you know, what's the housing market like? He can't do any of that. He is in blind faith, obeying Yahweh, leaving everything he knows to go to a new land. That is radical faith, right? He is obedient. He is in the right spot. And what happens to him, this obedient dude that's in the right spot in life, what happens to him? Famine. Not just famine, it actually calls it a severe famine. I say that because there's a lie that creeps in to Christianity where we begin to think, if you believe in Jesus, man, all your dreams will come true. Whatever you want, you will get. That somehow that is now what Christianity has been linked to, and it's wrong, right? That somehow when you believe in Jesus, you'll get yourself the spouse you wanted, the wife, the husband you want, right? That your kids will always obey you and they will turn out perfect, little angels. That your dog will learn a brand new trick without even trying. It'll finally shake your hand. There's this idea and it's totally wrong. You see very early here, God covenants with Abraham. Abraham obeys completely and life goes hard. Jesus made the promise. It's John 16, In this world, you will, not might, you will have tribulation. That's a promise of Jesus. Does anyone have that written on their refrigerator? Every morning you get your breakfast cereal and you're like, yep, that's today. No, but it's true. And Jesus adds to that this, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. See, the promise to the believer is not a tribulation-free life. The promise to the believer is when you go through tribulation, Jesus will be with you. That's our promise. That's Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. The number one command in the Bible is fear not. The reason why it's the number one command and repeat it over and over, because we're afraid of everything. Oh, the housing's good. Yeah, but it's gonna burst, right? Oh no, what happens if pot fails in grand spell? Oh, you know, we fear everything. I talk to people, fear is our number one emotion. And the Bible says, fear not, why? Because I'm with you. Fear not because I'm with you. So life happens. It happens to all of us. The only question is this, how do we respond? When there's tribulation, when there's suffering, how do we respond? So what does Abram do here? This New Testament picture of the father of faith. Does he sit down and pray? We don't know. The only thing we know is this. He leaves the promised land and goes to Egypt. I personally think that's okay. It was severe. He looks down in Egypt and there's food and people are doing well down there. And he's got Lot, his nephew. He's got his wife to take care of. He's got this crew that depends on him. He's like, there's food there. Let's go get it. I think at times you just do what's practical. There's food there. Let's go get it. When life happens, there's food there. Let's go get it. All right, so God comes, life comes, Thirdly, and we'll all experience this, sin comes. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman 
beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, (laughs) but they will let you live. Fear. Verse 13, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Oh, no. Every time I teach this, I think Abraham is up in heaven just going, oh, man, another church teaching that story. Man, I cannot live that one down. So, so brutal. I'm old-fashioned, and I kind of think like the dude always takes the hit no matter how hard the hit might be. So I'm like, Abram, you moron, right? If, if we're at home at night and we're in bed and we hear a broken window downstairs, I'm not saying, Charity, would you go check that out? <laughs> like, I can't find my slippers right now. Could you go just, you know, I got a headache. No, I'm taking the bullet. It's that, you know, that's, so it's like, Abram, what in the world? And then look what happens, verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Wednesday, I'll talk about what I think Abram thought would happen, and it's not this. So now... The worst possible thing that Abram could imagine happens to him. His wife is taken from him and brought into Pharaoh, the most powerful dude in the land, into his home. Think about Abram for a second. Think about him laying in his tent alone at night, the second guessing that would happen in his heart. Man, if I would have just stayed and earned the Chaldees, I obey God, I do all this, and now look at what it got me. Ever thought that way? If I would have just stayed in Bethel and not gone to Egypt, if I just hadn't lied about my wife, if it hadn't been Pharaoh, the one guy I can't say no to. Can you imagine the second guessing that Abram must have been saying right here? Can you imagine how he would feel the covenant can't come true? There's no way the covenant promises of God will come true. I call it tent time. You ever had tent time? Where you go back over mistakes you have made and you begin to wonder, am I outside of God's covenant now? I had a call in my life to go into ministry, but I chose comfort and security over God's call. Have I shipwrecked God's plan for me? I had sex before I got married. Will I ever find a wife that will love and accept me in my brokenness? Will I ever find a husband who will love and accept me with my brokenness? I got a divorce. I had an abortion. I lied. I cheated. I bankrupt. I stole. I did. Have I shipwrecked God's plan for me? Is he done with me? Are the promises that God made Have they been disqualified because of what I've done? Who hasn't sat in their tent and thought that like Abram? Hard, brutal time, right? And and I think it gets even worse. Look at verse 16. 
And for her sake, who is that? His wife. Because of Sarah, who Abram lied about and is now in Pharaoh's harem, because of her sake now, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants. One of those will become a problem later. Female donkeys and camels. This is to me the worst punishment of all. Have you ever blown it really bad and just been like, God, please punish me? Like, just take me to the woodshed. Please, God. Give me a disease. Give me a plague. Do something. I deserve it. I just want to be punished right now. And instead you get blessed. You're like, no, don't bless me now. Please don't bless me now. That's Abram. What does he care about all this rich stuff, all this wealth, when his wife, who he lied about, is in Pharaoh's harem? Oh, it's like insult to injury. So whenever I read the scriptures, I always try to put myself, after I've figured out what it means, I try to then put myself, all right, imagine me in this situation. How would that work out? So I preach, that's what I do, about a hundred times a year. And there are, in my mind, two kinds of preachers. There are preachers that comfort, like, you know what's right? Hey, this, all right, I'm going to comfort you. And then there are preachers that challenge and push lines. I tend towards challenge and push lines. Like I always think, you know what? We, we believe something that's wrong and I'm gonna try to repaint the picture that's right. And sometimes people don't like that. They wanna be comforted in what they already know. They don't wanna be challenged that maybe they're wrong. So I push lines a lot. So what happens is people will come to me then be like, you know, I was offended by what you said on Sunday, okay? I try to be gracious and, you know, I follow my sword. You know, I could have said it better. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But there are times that someone will come back and eventually I'll just say, you know what? I'm not everybody's flavor. I get it. I don't have a problem with that. I think for you, you better find somewhere else to go. And let me suggest some pastors that are much more comforting than I am. And they'll probably fit you better. And it's water off my back. No problem. It's okay. I realize I'm not for everybody. Fine. Right? Except the only one that really is different is when my wife says, Matt, what you said today was offending. <laughs> Number one, I can't tell her to go to another church. That'd be weird. <laughs> Where's your wife? I don't see her anymore. Yeah, she goes to Parkway. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't really like it here. <laughs> it's kind of strange, but hey. But it's more than that. Here's what I've told her. Because when she says something, I'm like, wow, okay. And I really take it personally. I say, I don't care if I win Edgewater and lose you. I said, the worst thing I could imagine is to have like a flourishing, incredible ministry and a wrecked marriage. There's nothing worse that I can imagine. That's Abram right here. Like, don't bless me, right? Oh, there's nothing worse. And it's happening to him right here. And all the covenant promises are in jeopardy. Right? You're gonna have a bunch of kids. Well, my wife is with Pharaoh. You're gonna eat this land. He's not even in the land. You're gonna be a blessing. Me, lying, pagan, coward, really? All the covenant promises God has made to Abraham, he has put in jeopardy right here. He's got to just think, oh, God's so disappointed in me. God is done with me. God's gonna move on and covenant with somebody else because I have shipwrecked this thing. That's what Abram would be thinking. So God comes, life comes, Sin comes, number four, God returns. Look at verse 17. 
but Yahweh. But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? (laughs) Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. (laughs) I love that. God returns to a lying, coward chicken named Abram. God returns. And he plagues Pharaoh and saves Sarah. God returns. Please know Abraham had no, Abram, later Abraham, Abram had no options here. He was 100% powerless. He is an immigrant in Egypt going against the most powerful man in the land. He had no options. There was no way he could get his wife back. There was no way he could make the promises of God come true. He had nothing. It's then, it's then that Yahweh comes back. You ever think God's promises won't work for you? My marriage is just not gonna work out. Been at this for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years. It's just not gonna work out. My kids, no way, they're done. No way. Physically, emotionally, I'm too broken. Everything God's promises won't work out. You can't see any way they could work out. I think sometimes God gets us to that point because then it humbles us. As we go through the story of Abram, here's what you're gonna see. Dude's way humble. He is way humble. You know why I believe he was way humble? Because of what took place right here. It humbled him, magnificently humbled him. God comes. The good news of the story is this. God returns and he turns the story on its head. And that's what God does. So when you read the Bible, what you see is over and over God coming and turning really bad stories on their head. We'll look at Joseph in a little while. I think Joseph, when he was young, was a bonehead. I think he deserved his, uh, the animosity. He earned the animosity of his 10 older brothers with the way that he lived. He was, he was kind of a punk. So he, you know what happens to him. He gets sold into slavery. All this stuff happens to him. But at the end of his life, he says this. What you meant for evil, God has turned for good. That God is the only one that can wring good even from evil. He's the only one that can do that. That he comes and he turns what was evil into good. The Exodus, God returns, turns slavery into salvation. God comes to this overlooked, ignored shepherd boy and God comes and returns to him and changes his ignored situation into him becoming king of Israel. And this whole thing culminates in Jesus who comes, God in the flesh, and turns the cross, the curse of the cross, into the salvation of the nations. This is God. This is what he does. He returns. See, this story is about God, not about you and me. God. When we're faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. He is the faithful one. That no matter how bad, how far, whatever it is, God does not change his character because he is the faithful 
one. Here's what these stories are supposed to be telling you and me as his people. It's supposed to be shaping us into Abram kind of people that realize no matter how dark it might look, no matter how dumb I have been, God remains faithful. And if God acted this way in the past, and you see this pattern totally throughout the Old Testament, if God acted this way in the past, then he's gonna act that way in my present right now. And I trust him. And this shapes Abram because in chapter 15, you have the ultimate example of faith where it says Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the gospel. This is what's shaping Abram to become that kind of a man. You and I, by our circumstances, by God's word, we're supposed to be in shape in the same way. I trust God. Not my faithfulness, my, not my tower building, not my gate design. I trust God. I trust God. No matter how dark the days, no matter how dumb the mistakes, I trust God. All right? Because God returns. He's the faithful one. But there's one final point, and it's this. Abram returns. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13 is renewal. We'll do that next Sunday. All right, I've blown, I've made mistakes. How do I get renewed? Well, chapter 13. I'll give you one point on it. So, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now, look at verse two. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Why did Abram go down to Egypt in the first place? He was stone cold broke. He couldn't feed his own family. He goes down there, makes colossal mistakes. He leaves there like Bill Gates, right? That's judo theology. Only God is the one that can wring good from evil. Does it for Abram. It's unbelievable. But here's the point. Verse three. And he journeyed on from the Negev, which is the, the south part of the desert down there, if you know Israel, as far as Bethel, it's in the north, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. Abram returns. He goes back to the place that he was at at the beginning. It's Shechem, it's between Bethel and Ai. Back to Shechem back to where he belonged, he returns. That's our response. Why does Abram go back? Because God punished him? Because of a law? No. Abram goes back because God had been so good to him, rescuing him in his sin and his stupidity and his mistakes. God had blessed him in spite of those things that Abram's response is, how can I not go back to you? Romans chapter two, verse four says this, that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. See, God wants our heart. He doesn't wanna force us into things. God wants our heart. He's getting Abram's heart right here. And so Abram goes back to where he belongs. Abram thought, I'm plan C, plan D, plan F, plan Z. And God says, no way, you're still plan A. You're still plan A. You're still the family that I'm gonna bring my promises through. And Abram's response is, oh, I gotta go back. This is the God we serve. This is the God we serve. Do you think God was in heaven 
when Abram was lying about his wife, getting his wife sucked into Pharaoh's harem, do you think God was in heaven going, oh my goodness, why did we choose this guy? Whose idea was to take Abram? Come on. No. God knew the whole time. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. You have not surprised God. Our sin does not surprise God. Collectively, our laziness, our self-centeredness, our lies, our deceit, they do not surprise God. When God said, I am going to covenant with you, Matt Heverly, I take all your garbage with you and all the future garbage as well. I covenant with you, Matt, and you and your sin will never surprise me. How good is that? It's why the psalmist says in Psalm 33, 12, the psalmist says this, blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. Why? Because he's this kind of God. Blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. If you've been wandering, go back to your Bethel. Because Jesus tells a very similar story to this. It's called the prodigal son. Where another guy heads off to the wrong place. While he's there, he gets involved in all kinds of sin. There's a famine in the land. He's starving. And then when he's in the pig pen, he says he came to himself and said, I'm going home. I don't belong here. I'm going home. And when he got home, the father runs out and grabs a hold of him and puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and throws a party. Because Jesus says that, that, that a shepherd rejoices over one sheep he finds much more than the 99 that are doing well, so the heavens rejoice over one repentant sinner. The heavens throw a party when the Abrams come back from Egypt to where they belong. If you've wandered, you come back. It's that simple. And the heavenly father throws his arms around you, puts a robe on you, puts a ring of power on your finger, puts sandals on your shoes and kills a fatted calf. This is the God we serve. Chapter 12 is to straighten out all the junk of chapter 11. No, you guys have seen me wrong. You have a wrong picture of me. This is who I am. I come and when life comes and sin comes, I come back to you because I want you to come to me. And this story is repeated throughout the Old Testament. And I've seen this story repeated in me time and time again. And we actually come to the table because every week the table tells us this. You can come to him and he will not be mad at you. That the divide, the penalty that would keep you and me from the father's house has been paid in full. That every sin I commit or will commit was paid 2,000 years ago. They were all in the future. And Jesus has said, I accept you, junk and all. And I'm gonna transform you into my image. And he does this to get our hearts so that we trust him because that's the kind of people we're supposed to be. So if you are here today and you had wandered, maybe you went to Egypt and in Egypt you sinned because that's usually what happens in Egypt. Know this today. As you eat, as you drink, God is calling you back to himself. 
If you're in a really dark spot, maybe because of dumb things you've done, of verse 16, know this, God keeps his promises. When we fail, God does not. He will not deny his character. Know that. Eat and drink that. Let your heart trust in him that much more. That's what he wants. And so Jesus, we are covenant wreckers like Abram, but you are the covenant keeper. I pray that we as a people, as we see this man, this example, this father of faith, an idolatrous, chicken, lying, pagan, that you turn into a gem. I pray that that would cause our hearts to sing. And we would say like the psalmist, blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. Great things you have done. I pray for any in here who maybe wandered down to Egypt and now are wondering if they've been disqualified. May your body and your blood sing to them of forgiveness, of celebration, of strength. I pray for any who are in hard times, maybe because of dumb mistakes. I pray as we eat and as we drink, Lord, you would strengthen us. And we would know that even when we're in the valley, you are with us. And that your thoughts for us are thoughts to prosper us and bring us to a good end. And that we would trust you so much more. So may we eat and may we drink strength and power. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.